Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to look to Scripture. Father, your word is alive. And so I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would help us to see the beauty of the gospel and how the gospel gives us an answer for our shame. God, I pray that uh, we would come out of the darkness into the light to find life because of who you are and your great love for us. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, the Christmas season of 1994 had started out to be a totally normal Christmas season. And so uh, James Whitey Bulger was just finishing up some last-minute Christmas shopping at Neiman Marcus, but he was approached by someone who had changed the course of the rest of his life. Uh, Whitey Bulger uh, was approached by John Connolly, uh, and Connolly uh, was an FBI informant. So he worked for the FBI, but he was providing information to the mob. Uh, and he approached Whitey Bulger and told him that the U.S. Justice Department was about to issue racketeering charges, or an indictment of racketeering issue, uh, against Bulger. So that night, Whitey Bulger left all his stuff at uh, Neiman Marcus and became a ghost. He went into hiding. Uh, Bulger, uh, you may remember, was the leader of the Winter Hill Gang in Boston in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Uh, th- under his leadership, the Winter Hill Gang was like one of the most notorious crime gangs in American history. Uh, they were called the Boston Mafia. Uh, Whitey Bulger is believed to have some connection to 19 murders. He's been charged with extortion, drug dealing, money laundering. Uh, and the Winter Hill Gang is actually responsible for the world's largest art heist. Uh, they robbed a Boston area museum and stole works of art by Rembrandt and Manet. Uh, and so Whitey Bulger went into hiding. And while he was in hiding, he would go on to be uh, the FBI's most wanted criminal. He topped that list. He beat out Osama bin Laden once bin Laden was captured. He was a bad dude. Uh, And when he was in hiding, all these legends started popping up about where he was and what he was doing. Maybe he was spotted in Uruguay, or maybe he was in, in Europe partying with supermodels. But as is often the case, reality is a lot less exciting than the legend. Uh, When Whitey Bulger was captured in 2011, uh, he and his longtime girlfriend were found not living in lavishness and extravagance, but they were living in a rent-controlled apartment on the west side of L.A. Uh, he was, his neighbors had no idea who he was. Uh, they thought he was just this elderly, angry, older person. Uh, they would often see him just having these fits of rage, and then he would feed squirrels peanuts. And so people thought he had dementia. They had no idea who this guy really was. And the story that came out again and again about Bulger uh, was like, how was it that this most notorious criminal, one of the baddest bad guys America has ever produced, was able to hide from the FBI for so long? And the phrase that kept coming out again and again was that Bulger was able to do that because he was hiding in plain sight. This morning, we're going to talk about sex. And you can't talk about sex without talking about 
shame. Shame is how many of us hide out in plain sight. Shame is that feeling that if others know, if others find out, if they learn who I really am, I'll be rejected. The jig is up. It's over. If I'm discovered, that's it. I might even die. Brene Brown, uh, who's a researcher who studies and thinks about shame, says that there's two types of people in the world when it comes to shame. There's people who experience shame, and then there's sociopaths. So I'm just going to assume that nobody in this room is a sociopath, that we all have a relationship of some kind with shame. Uh, And when we talk about sex, that shame just goes hand in hand with that conversation. Because we are all sexual people. We all have sexual desires and thirsts, and we're all broken people. So since the fall, no one has done sex perfectly. We've all distorted it. We've all perverted it. Every single one of us. I am not exempt from this conversation. And with that comes shame. And so this morning, we're going to see how the gospel speaks directly to our shame. How the gospel talks to sinful people and woos us out of the dark into the light. Uh, and, and like, look, when we talk about this, like, uh, it's really easy to like, just, if we just were to plop in the middle of Ephesians and, and say, oh, there's all these things. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Um, that's rude, okay? Like, if, if, if I'm having a conversation with someone and we're talking and you just come up and you've not been listening to anything that's happened beforehand and you're like, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about this. And then you leave. Like, you're just a social tornado. You're not a good listener. And so this morning, let's be good listeners. This is not just dropping out of thin air and just saying, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. This is coming after all this talk, all this conversation about good news, about how God loves sinners and rescues sinners and redeems them. And so then we get instruction about sex. And so so don't miss that. If we're going to get wooed out of the darkness into the light, there's a, the, what God does is this three-step process. First, he wants you to know you're loved. Like you are deeply loved and cared for. And then after we see that love of a father, we see that these warnings about sex aren't someone who's trying to withhold good from us, but it's, it's, it's coming from love and generosity and trying to protect us from danger. And then when we see that, we can be persuaded. We can be wooed out of the darkness into the light. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. You are loved. And when we believe that, only after that, then we're going to start talking about the danger of sexual immorality. And then we're going to talk about how there's healing in the light. So counterintuitive to what shame tells us to do. Stay in the darkness. They're saying, no, 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 come to the light where there's healing. So let's first look at that. Let's how you are loved. Where am I getting that? Am I making that up? Look with me at verses 1 and 2. This is what, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This would have been totally wild for the original hearers of this letter. 
See, we live in the West. We don't live in the same culture as this original audience. This is an honor-shame culture. This is the kind of culture where it's like, hey, if you're going to go out, uh, don't come back unless you've made a name for yourself. Don't bring shame on the family. This isn't just about you and your personal happiness. You have a last name. Go do that name proud, and if you don't, you're dead to me. And so Paul's talking to people who live in the world that's not different from ours at all. I think we've all kind of bought into this, like, leave it to beaver lie. Like, when TV was new, it was very edited and very clean, and then all of a sudden people got away with a lot, like in, like, the 80s and stuff. And so we believe, like, oh, the world used to be pure, used to be wholesome, you know, people used to leave their doors unlocked, and then then it got really bad in, like, the 70s. No way. Like, it's always been bad, okay? Like, we have, we have pottery and we have writings from ancient time. There's nothing new under the sun, okay? And so, like, Paul's writing to people who live in the same world you and I do. And when he's talking about, like, hey, there's danger out there, how does he start the conversation? Especially in an honor-shame culture. You know what would have been a great motivator in an honor-shame culture? Don't mess up sexually. That's so bad. That's shameful. If you do that, just run and hide. No. He says this, you are loved. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Now, it doesn't even just say be imitators of a father as a child. It says as loved children, as that favorite kid. Today's my mom's birthday, and I think I'm her favorite. And I I kind of just say that because I'm sure she's probably listening to the podcast. Happy birthday, mom. But like, that's the relationship that you need to have with God. You are a deeply loved child. You're not a nuisance to a father. He doesn't hate you. He loves you. And like, think about just what a wild statement this is. God, the most powerful being in the universe, loves you. That's real power who's saying, hey, I'm going to get down on my hands and knees and play with you. I care about you. I value you. You are important to me. Even that title where he says this, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's a radical statement. That's a wild identity that we're given. See, when Jesus is introduced on the scene, when he first goes public in the Gospels, uh, he's baptized by a guy named John in the Jordan River, okay? And as he's being baptized, the heavens split open, a dove comes down, and then they hear a voice, okay? Like, been around the block a few times. Nothing like that has ever happened to me, okay? This is a wild and new thing. God's saying, pay attention to this. This is different than everything I've been doing in the past. And what does he say? This is my dearly loved son. God loves his son dearly. It's his, it's the, he is the apple of his eye. Now what does Paul say about us? We get that status. We are dearly loved children, deeply loved. How do we get that status? Look at at what it says. It says this, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, gave himself in behalf of us. This great exchange, this great substitution. Jesus, the deeply loved son, the favorite child, experiences shame so that people living in shame 
can experience the love of a father. It's a great exchange and it's called the gospel. That sinful people who really are sinful, more sinful than they even know, and they have a whole lifetime to live, they keep on being exposed to just how deeply sinful they are. To quote Arcade Fire to you, we don't deserve love. And, and, and this is right out of the gate. He's saying you are deeply loved. And he's trying to also paint a picture of what love looks like. This love is not just a sentiment. It's a generosity. It's a deep, deep generosity. God's love looks like generosity. Here's what it says. Christ gave himself in behalf of us. What's more precious? What's more valuable? There's nothing else he could have given. He gave it all. And we're loved. But we don't believe that. We don't believe the God of the universe. We trust shame. Brene Brown, who studies shame, she says that shame is that voice that tells us who we are. You are this. That's why you do that. There's a different message for those of you who know Jesus. You are not your failures. You are a deeply loved child. This substitution has given you a whole new identity. You're not defined by your guilt. You're not defined by your failures. You are loved. And this comes near the end of Ephesians. He's been saying this over and over again, and he keeps saying it. Why? Because we're so quick to forget it. We don't naturally wake up and think like, man, I'm deeply loved. I have a father who cares. The God of the universe loves me. No, no, no. We let shame speak louder. I'm, you know what? If people just knew who I really was, Oh, I just got just to gotta keep going. Here, Paul is trying to confront and, uh, just what you say about yourself with who God says about you. And in a culture where that would have been so backwards, in this honor-shame culture. And look, I've been talking about how you're loved, I don't know, what, seven minutes? Like, that's not enough time. It's like, yeah, I mentioned your love and you heard it for seven minutes, Boom. This is a discipline. This is something that we need to work to believe. Because nothing inside of us naturally wants to believe this. We who know shame, we who have an experience of shame, it seems so counterintuitive to just say we're loved. Oh, that's just so I get off the hook and feel better about myself. That's just some nicety. No, no, this is something we need to fight to believe. And then... Then we can see clearly the conversation about sexual sin. And we can see that this conversation about sexual sin is not coming from a God who's like a judge and just wants to keep us in line with him. He's not just saying, hey, uh, like, just behave, okay? Like, be good, then I'll love you. No, no, no. This is coming from a God who loves us deeply at great cost to himself, who's generous, who's helping us redefine and reimagine what it even means to love. A God who cared about the well-being of others who just deserved shame. A God who not only cared about it, but met their needs at high expense to himself is now saying, hey, there's real danger out there. 
He's not a God who's trying to keep us from a good time. Uh, He's not a God who's out there just trying to say like, oh, this is how I want the world to be. Just be that way, okay? Get it. Just get it. But it's a loving Father who cares. And I have to say this so loud and clearly. Like, the Bible is not anti-sex. The Bible is not anti-sex. Can I get an amen? amen? Thank you. All right. Here's how we know this. Here's how we know this. Uh, so in Hebrew, uh, there's this construction. So like, king, you, you hear it all the time. King of kings, Lord of lords, heaven of heavens. Everybody heard that? That's familiar. So in Hebrew, what that's doing is saying like, so if Yahweh is the king of kings, that means he's like the ultimate king. If he's the God of gods, he's the ultimate God. And he lives in the heaven of heavens. Well, that's like the ultimate place to live. He's the ultimate. He's El Hefe. He's the king. Boom. The Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is full of songs. There's songs all throughout it, from Genesis, Exodus. There's a book of the Psalms. Uh, There's all kinds of songs all throughout the Hebrew Bible. But there's one song that's called the Song of Songs. So what does that mean? If it's the Song of Songs, it's the ultimate song. It's the best song. What's it about? Sex. Okay? It's It's not an allegory for Christ and the church. It's an incredibly graphic book about sex. Okay? Rabbis used to not let men read this book until they were 30 because it's crazy graphic. Okay? And look, that's what the the Bible is very pro-sex. And like, what I'm about to say, this may be controversial. I have no idea. I've totally lost my like radar for controversy here. Okay? So this might be controversial and it might be just, oh yeah. Um, But sex and sexual, sexual immorality are two totally different things. Sex and sexual immorality are not the same thing. It's kind of like baseball and cricket, okay? So if you don't have any idea what's going on, they kind of look like they're the same thing, same equipment, totally different games. That's sex and sexual immorality. So when the Bible uh, talks about sex within marriage, it's the only place sex can take place, it uses a language like this. This is Genesis 4. Adam knew his wife Eve. See that? There's just this whole being brought there, naked and not ashamed. They know each other. Intimacy. Fast forward to 2 Samuel 11. David has an adulterous affair with a woman named Bathsheba. And how does it describe that relationship? David lay with Bathsheba. Here's what may be controversial. I would say that if you have had sexual encounters with people and you're not married, you've never actually really had sex. You've just had sexual immorality. And they're totally different. And that's really important to clear that up when we talk about shame. Because about sex, there should be no shame. We shouldn't be prudes, all right? The Bible is loud and clear and celebrates sex. But, and, and, and sometimes we can feel shame about that. That's misplaced shame. It's not biblical shame. Uh, there's, and that's just wrong, all right? That's like 17th century Victoria era in your mind, not the Bible. When the Bible talks about sexual sin, though, sexual immorality, that comes hand in hand with shame as well. And we need to talk about that and deal with that. And so there's three words that Paul uses to describe sexual immorality. It's in verse uh, 3. He says, Sexual immorality and all impurity and greed must not be named among you as is proper among saints. So he's not talking about sex. He's talking about this other thing. The word for sexual immorality, like immorality is kind of a weird word. We don't use it in our regular day-to-day conversation, but it's the word pornea. 
And so you can see what words come out of that, pornography. But it's sort of this like all-encapsulating term, like a junk drawer, if you will, that includes everything. It's all kinds of sexual encounters outside of marriage. And then that word uncleanliness is like an extra, like just in case we missed anything, uncleanliness. And what Paul is trying to do here is not stir up shame in you. What he's trying to do is recalibrate your idea of what beautiful is. He's trying to warn you about danger. Um, And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to contrast sexual immorality with God's love. God's love is generous. God's love gives. What does sexual immorality do? It takes. Look at that. He says sexual immorality, impurity, or greed. Uh, He goes on to say that uh, greed in verse 5 really is idolatry. He's trying to not just get at behavior modification. He's not just saying stop. He's trying to show you the heart attitude that's beneath the surface, that's coming out, and it's expressed when we lust. And it's so far away from God's heart attitude. It's so far away from the character of God, how he's generous and he's giving. He cares for our needs. Lust, sexual immorality, look at what it says. It's greedy. It's an appetite. And it says, feed me and I'll never be full. Look, he he says uh, in verse 4, he says, look, there shouldn't be filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. That's out of place. But instead, there should be gratitude. He's saying that one comes from this desire, this hunger, and then if we really understand love, it creates gratitude. Like, sexual immorality is a desire that will never really be filled. It's something, it's a desire that instead of caring for the well-being of others, it doesn't value and protect their dignity. It just says, how can I get what I need, what I want from you? It's that, it's that greed. It's not generosity, it's greed. And, and then even further, uh, what is, it's idolatry. We talked a little bit before in here about what idolatry is. Um, idolatry is looking to anyone or anything for value and significance other than God. That's a crazy burden to put on someone. Say, hey, I get my value and my significance from you. And Paul's saying, like, look, that's also attached to this heart desire that says, I can never really be satisfied. He's trying to show us that, like, God isn't trying to keep you from a good time. He's trying to keep you from disaster. Don't attach yourself to this this heart attitude that's so disconnected from who God is, that just wants and takes and won't ever be filled. And then he goes even farther. Verse 11, he says this, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. He's saying the sexual immorality, it's like going out and planting an apple tree and investing a lot of energy into it. You know, clearing the soil, fertilizing, watering. Just, I've, I mean, I, I've never planted an apple tree. I imagine this is what it is. You just really take a ton of care of it and you wait and you wait for fruit and there's no fruit ever. That's what sexual immorality is. It makes all kinds of promises and can't ever deliver on them. And Paul, Paul wants you to know, like, this is really dangerous. Because, like, look at some of the warnings that he sends uh, uh, with this. He says this in verse 5, uh, that you can be sure of this. Everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. Let no one deceive you. Or literally what he says is, let no one seduce you. 
uh, with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. Here's what he's saying. This is so out of line with God's character. And you can be so out of touch with God's character and so connected into this world that you really aren't his. That's scary. But I want to give, like, I want to give a little bit of hope because we're talking about shame and when you start throwing around things like that to shame-filled people, people who wrestle with shame are like, see, I knew it. I'm an imposter. I'm a fake. And I struggle. It's over. And so now I have to stay in shame. I have to stay in the darkness because like, if I come out, I'm really not saved. This is terrible. How is this shame in the gospel? How is this hopeful? Here's what he's saying. When he says this in verse 5, you can be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, who's unpure and greedy, what he's saying there is that's the substance of their life. That's their identity. That's the truest thing about them. That's who they are. They're in the darkness, and they don't want to come in the light. They've never been in the light. They hate the light. And he's saying, look, we all struggle. But let's not be naive, okay? So there's this old urban legend about youth ministers and porn, okay? And so the urban legend goes something like this, uh, that back in the day uh, when people used to order porn uh, in hotels, uh, that when there would be like a Christian conference and youth ministers would come to this Christian conference, that the, the, the hotels would report like a spike in porn ordering. That like there would be all kinds of other conferences throughout the year, but when there were Christian conferences, that's when porn ordering went up. So Justin Holcomb, who is a, uh, he was a professor at University of Virginia, wanted to like look into this urban legend. Is this really true? And what he found was that it's kind of true. So yes, uh, many hotels do, did report that when there was a Christian conference, when Christian workers, youth ministers came into town, sometimes porn usage would spike. Then he said, but sometimes it stays the same. Here, we're supposed to be a counterculture when it comes to sex. And if you look at our internet search history, we're exactly the same as our neighbors. And so for many of us, many of, our, many of our neighbors have said, like, you've lost your right to lecture me about sex. Who do you think you are? You're no different than me. And, like, that can create and produce a lot of shame. And look, uh, I'm friends with a, a dean of a, a library at an evangelical seminary. And so as the dean of the library, they have access to uh, what all the students do online. Because, you know, they log into the network. So he sees what everyone's doing. And he said to me, he said, yeah, look, like, uh, when people coming to this seminary, which is a seminary that loves the Bible, sends missionaries all over the world, people who are on campus, six out of ten people, uh, when they're out on campus, are looking at some kind of pornographic material. Think about that for a second. That's church leaders. That's people who've like made sacrifice. Like, I don't know if you know, you don't get rich going to seminary. It's like a very bad financial decision. Um, <laughs> these are people who've made sacrifices and they're hooked. They're addicted. They're on, they're on campus. They're not even in the privacy of their own homes. They're out in public. Look, as a church, we're hooked on this, and we're no different than the world. And what do we do? Like Paul's saying, have no, no part. Be, don't be partakers. And we are. And we're stuck. And this is now where Paul wants to confront the lie. Right now, you may be up to your eyeballs in shame. Right now, talking about sexual sin, talking about porn, it's like, don't make eye contact, don't look at me, okay? Like. And so we're at a crossroads together. What do we do? 
Do we stay in the darkness where it's safe? Or do we come into the light where it could be dangerous? Where we could experience loss? Where we could experience more shame? Right now, Paul is exposing a lie. The lie that shame says. He said, look, shame says we can't ever come to the light. It's going to make things way worse. Stay in the darkness. But Paul's saying this, no, 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 no. The light is where healing takes place. Come into the light because that's where healing takes place. And listen to this. This is an odd quotation of scripture. No one knows exactly where it's from, and he kind of just strings together a bunch of ideas. Here's what he says. Look uh, in verse 14. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead. Hear that? Those are two different people. Someone's asleep and someone is dead. Okay? And so that covers everybody. Maybe you're in darkness and you know this isn't how I want to live. I know Jesus and I'm really just ashamed of what I'm doing. Or maybe you've never met Jesus and you're in darkness and you want to stay there. The solution is the same for both of us. The solution is this. Come into the light. Look what he says. Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. So come out of the darkness. Awake, turn on the lights, rise from the dead. Come out of that tomb. What will happen? Christ will shine on you. Christ will shine on you. That's a promise. Well, so what? That sounds terrifying, right? No, no, no. Look back. He says this uh, in verse 13. Anything exposed by the light becomes visible. And anything that becomes visible is light. Shame says stay in the darkness. Hide. You won't be accepted. The gospel says come into the light and you'll be transformed. You'll be healed. You'll be made light. This is, this is pictured beautifully in um, Isaiah 6. Isaiah finds himself in the temple and he sees God in all his holiness. And God is surrounded by all these angels worshiping him, saying, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah makes this statement. He says, Woe is me. Woe is a funeral dirge. It means I'm dead. Farewell. I'm gone. And there's that temptation of shame. What do you do? I know I'm not worthy. I know I don't add up. What happens? An angel flies to the altar grabs a coal and touches his lips and he's changed. Why? What happened there? Well, the whole book of Isaiah is trying to answer this one question. How does a holy God dwell among unholy people? How does a righteous God dwell among unrighteous people? Well, his presence transforms them. His presence makes them new. Coming into the light doesn't kill you. Coming into the light makes you alive. That's what Paul's saying. If you come into the light, what's the promise? What's that thing that you can take to the bank? Christ will shine on you. He will shine on you. He's saying this, you're loved. There's danger. Run from the danger to a father who loves you. Look, what did we say about sexual immorality? That there's no fruit. It's a tree that just never grows any apples. But that's not the same with light. Look at verse 9. This is what he says about the light. He says, the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. You would think that the fruit of the light would be more shame. 
would be just being totally humiliated. But the fruit of the light is all that is good. That's connected back to God's love. That word good, it really means generosity, concern and care for others' well-being. That's how God loves us. So the fruit of coming into the light is experiencing that generosity and it changes you into a generous person. Where shame is described by darkness. You can't see anybody else in the dark. It's just you. When you come into the light though, now you can see other people. Righteousness. Uh, That idea of righteousness is somebody who's willing to harm themselves for the sake of the community. Someone who's willing to harm themselves for the sake of others. Greed is unrighteous because it's willing to harm others for my own sake. It's saying, I don't care about who you are, your hopes, your dream. I just want sex from you. I just want this thing from you, and when I'm done, you're done. But coming into the light transforms us into righteous people who have been transformed to now care. We now have the ability and the desire to care about others' well-being, even at our own expense. Why? Because that's how we've been loved. We've experienced that, in, that great exchange where the favorite son took on shame and now we're the favorite children. And then what's the last fruit of the light? Truth. The idea of truth, I think when we hear truth in our Western minds, we think like not lies. So tell the truth, don't tell things that are lies. Well, in this context, the idea of truth has the idea of faithfulness. In the dark, it's just you. You're all alone. The fruit of the light, though, is that there's a faithful Father who loves you faithfully, even as we fail. We can't do this perfectly. And that's what happens just when we come into the light. We can't produce these things on our own. So where do we go from here? Well, Paul tells us this, gives us this promise, and then he says this in verse 15. Look carefully, then, uh, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. So if, we're gonna, if we are really going to be people who take our shame and bring it into the light, Paul, Paul wants to, to instruct us to do that in wise ways. How do we do that? Well, I just want to give you two, three really practical ways to do this. Uh, the first way, if we really are going to deal with our shame, biblically, is I want you to just take time this week. Take time away from what, whatever busyness you have and just sit quietly before God. Maybe take a half hour and just be. See, like, shame doesn't really like silence. We like to just fill the silence because it reminds us, like, oh, there's stuff there I don't like. Just take a half hour and be before God. At the end of that half hour, I want you to write out five things that it means that God loves you as a father. Five things it means that God loves you as a father. I'm giving you homework. Look, because like if we, if you just jump into, okay, I have a porn problem, I have uh, an inappropriate relationship at work, I have all these things. If you just jump there first and not do the real heart work, you're just going to be, you're just going to be dealing with behavior. But you really need to know and believe how has God loved me as a father? Okay, well, that means he's generous. Okay, that's the first way. What does generosity mean? Maybe throughout the week, visit it and try to say things differently. How has God loved you? Five benefits. The second way, Brene Brown uh, said that we are the most obese, heavily medicated, and addicted generation 
ever to roam planet Earth. Um, what are we doing there? We're numbing ourselves. We're just numbing ourselves. What are we numbing ourselves from? Shame. Part of coming into the light means that we take a break from the things that numb us. And when we think about that, like numbing myself, I'm not numbing myself. I'm not, you know, that's like way over here. I'm like over here. We all do it on different levels. So some people maybe drink too much. Other people, though, maybe get on their phones too much and don't want to think through like the shame and those voices. So they just numb themselves with their phones. Wherever you are on that spectrum, we need to be aware of how we numb ourselves. And, and wherever you are, you may need to get help, or it may be about just like taking a break from that numbing agent in your life. Just sit in silence. Recognize like, oh, I'm really not as much of a news junkie as I thought I was. I'm really just numbing myself. And the third way, the third way that we need to, well, how we can walk wisely is to confess. Now, Whenever we start talking about confession, there's all kinds of questions. What does that mean? Who am I supposed to confess to? What's going on here? Um, and look, this, this is, I understand, like, asking you to confess your sins is really risky. And this is where shame comes loud and clear in this. If, if my spouse knows what's going on, my marriage could be over. You know, if, if so-and-so from my small group knew what was really happening, they'd kick me out of the small group. Like, Craig, it's really nice of you to say these things, but you don't know who I am and what I've done. And the antidote for that is not to stay in the darkness. Like, I get it. There may be real consequences to what you've done. But staying in the darkness won't make those any better. There really is healing in the light. We truly believe that. We truly believe that when you take that first step, as hard as it may be, as soon as you get on the other side, there's a balming rescue that God gives you, and it's called grace. And you can't experience that unless you come into the light. So for some of you, confession is going to be hard. Telling your spouse, telling people in your life what you've done does carry risk with it. So if you're someone in here who someone's going to confess to you, what I would just want to encourage you to do is just recognize the courage that takes. Recognize that they could have stayed in the darkness. And I know it might hurt, but at least in the moment, celebrate them coming into the light. And then we can walk toward healing together. We're not in this alone. We, I mean, darkness, the, the picture there is aloneness. And we do this together. I mean, every single one of us has hidden. As soon as sin uh, entered the world, the first thing people did was run and hide. I've hid, you've hid. But there's hope and there's healing in the light. It's hard, but we can walk in the light together because the promise that when we come into the light is that Christ will shine on us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love that you've given us. Those of us who don't deserve love, who've been hiding out in the open, have a father. We are the apple of your eye. You love us like you love your son. So God, I pray that we would see the call to turn from sexual immorality, not as a call uh, to 
uh, from a God who just wants to deny pleasure, but from a Father who loves and is keeping us from danger. And God, I pray that that would cause many of us to run into the light where healing can be found. Help us to do this by the power of the Spirit. In your Son's name, amen. Thank you.